gospel comes from Matthew, the 23rd chapter, uh, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease their burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scriptures verses inside of them, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogue. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your spiritual father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In today's gospel, Jesus presents us with three questions, questions that are to penetrate us in our spiritual lives, and also a double meaning. And these three things, the three questions and the double meaning, all stand behind Jesus' teaching this morning. When Jesus addressed the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew does something really unique. In the beginning, the first seven verses of our reading today, Matthew is reporting Jesus' teaching as describing they, referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. They like to walk around in beautiful robes, you know, extra long tassels. They are the ones who interpret the law. Listen to them, but don't practice what they preach. You see, in all of those references, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. But then Matthew does something unique. Most scholars highlight this uh, from verses 8 on, from verse 8 on. What, uh, what Matthew does, uh, or seven on, is, is that he changes the pronoun from they to you. Now, why would Matthew do this? Because Matthew wants us to understand, to know, that what Jesus was teaching the scribes and the Pharisees goes for us as Christians as well today. You see, Matthew's gospel was written probably around 70 to 80 A.D., so that would have been nearly two generations after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Christians now have a couple of generations of apostles and teachers and leaders, and not all of them have been up to the mark. Not all of them are shooting par. And so what Jesus 
is saying to us through Matthew is that his critique of the scribes and Pharisees is not just a critique of the scribes and Pharisees, it's a critique of Christian teachers and leaders as well. So, in verses 7 through 12 today, Jesus is including me. And Jesus just might be including you. Now, if life wasn't already challenging us with COVID-19, with uh, civil uh, disruption in terms of our coming election, and in the midst of all the other things that we're dealing with in terms of the economy, if things weren't bad enough, on top of that, there's some research that show why, why I selected the title that I did for today's sermon, Christians Behaving Badly. It's research that was done by Lifeway Research, which is a, a Southern Baptist organization, publishing house. Um, and the reason I chose this because they're going to put the best picture possible because they have the best picture possible on Christianity. And this is what they report. According to Lifeway Research, 70% of Protestants stop attending church from the ages of 18 to 22. And we wonder where all the young people went. 70% of them stop attending church. Why did they leave? This is what the research showed them. 26% said it was because church members were judgmental or hypocritical. An additional 15% said it was due to church members being unfriendly, unwelcoming, inhospitable. What they discovered was that Christians' bad behavior has propped open the church's back doors. So these are young people who were coming to church that stopped coming to church. And here's the really bad news. This research was done almost 15 years ago, and it's just gotten worse. So, if you needed any law, any bad news, you sure are getting it today, right? Well, that brings me to my first question then. Looking at this text in, con in the context of not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but us Christians as well, the first question is, do you have a life worth imitating? I've told you this before. I remember being asked that question uh, the first time, and I was at a conference. I was asked by a pastor who I deeply respect, and I was so uncomfortable when he asked me that question. Now, I wasn't uncomfortable because I'm leading an immoral life. I wasn't uncomfortable because I was breaking all kinds of laws. I, I'm not doing that. I was uncomfortable because I'm the sinner. I was uncomfortable because I make mistakes. I, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I am uncomfortable using my life as an example because, to be honest, I don't think of it as a very good example. And so I, I was almost depressed when he asked me that question. But as I've meditated on that question, as I've lived with that, I, I realized that even though I haven't always been the pastor that I should be, and even though I haven't always been the father or the husband that I could be, 
though that is a part of who I am, what I began to understand was that there were some things intrinsically in me that God made in me that can reflect the light of Christ. Don't we teach our kids that? Let your light shine. Not in a prideful way, but in a way that gathers a, a spiritual recognition that God is present here in this place and in these people. That's one of the lessons that I've been able to learn in my old life. You see, when I was in seminary, I was taught that the best quality information was going to be part of the best teaching. So our focus, our goal was to become as knowledgeable as possible, to become the best teacher. What they didn't talk about was that there was another component, and that is the best life to imitate, the best life to practice. And so one of the things that I have been learning is that it is okay to imitate, it is okay to practice from Christians who you look to as mentors. It's not because they're perfect, but it's because they're reflecting the light of Christ in a way that helps you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying in verse 3 when he says, practice and obey what they tell you, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the Christian teachers and mentors. Practice what they tell you, but if they're actions don't follow their teaching, don't follow them. Listen to their teaching, but don't follow them. Follow the ones who, um, who shine the light. Follow those within whom the light of Christ emanates. And rather than focusing on whether you've been a good example, a good enough example or not, ask yourself this question, because you know, whether you're good enough is, is completely the wrong question. You're a child of God. You're good enough. That's taken care of. But the question that I think Jesus is asking us here is who are you helping to follow Jesus? Who are you discipling? Now, this may be an easy question for parents who have children at home who dearly want to see their children grow up in faith or grandparents who are helping to spiritually uh, parent their grandchildren. But if you're not involved in the lives of children, then who, who are you discipling? Who are you following so that others might follow you? Well, the next question, the second question from this teaching, it is, is what is your reaction to sinful people? What is your reaction to wayward people? You know, the people that really get under your skin. You know, there's just nothing really of quality about them that you can see. What do you, what is your reaction to them? What do you want to do to them? What do you expect from them? From the Torah, the scribes taught that there were 613 laws. And in addition to that, they had expanded the teachings because they had oral tradition that they also taught alongside of the scripture. 
So there were so many laws and traditions of the elders that it was hard to keep track of everything. And because of that, being so many laws and traditions, people often felt burdened by that, overwhelmed by the expectations. Earlier in Matthew, um, chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus addresses the same issue. When he says, come to me, this is verses 28 to 30 in, in chapter 11, um, Matthew 11, 28 to 30, then Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, a yoke is a harness that was used to, to capture and to direct the power of two oxen. The yoke uh, fell over the necks of two oxen. It was also an image for the expectations of, of discipleship. You were yoked. You were discipled by a rabbi. So Jesus is saying that his yoke is easy and light. It is not burdensome because it is easy to bear. And why is it easy to bear? Is it less demanding of the law, of the teachings of God? No, it is not less demanding. But it is easy. It is light because it is given to us by the Messiah. And he and the Holy Spirit make it possible for us to follow him. Salvation doesn't come through our observation and our obedience to all the laws. That is not how salvation comes. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. Because of our baptism into Christ, we are saved. And that is how our, the gift of following Jesus comes to us. And that's why the yoke is easy to bear. It's because we've already been brought into this family. We are brothers and sisters of Christ, brought into this family, and we can bear the yoke out of gratitude. We can follow the teachings of God because we love God, because of what God has done for us. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And because of that salvation, we thankfully observe the law. So what unbearable demands are crushing you? Some of you have shared with me that you're experiencing pandemic fatigue. Others of you may be experiencing election fatigue. And what Jesus is saying is that he is here with you. He is here for you to take that burden from your shoulders. Turn it to God. Turn it over to Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to enter into your life again and again to remove the burden and to replace it with freedom and hope and love. See, what this is is a call to a relationship. A relationship with a gentle and humble teacher. 
Jesus is your disciple maker. And he says, the world is crushing you right now. But I am here to bring you life. And to bring you abundant life. And that leads us to the third and big question. What do you want from Jesus? What are you expecting? Do you want your political candidate to win? Do you want to become a multi-millionaire? Do you want your children to grow up in the Christian faith, your grandchildren to grow up in the Christian faith? What do you want from Jesus? Jesus is here. And he has been here since he came as a human incarnate 2,000 years ago. And what he has come to present to us is a gift. But what gift are you looking for? When I was a small child, my parents loved to watch the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights. And what I recall about that was uh, I remember some of the acts, I remember all the Buffaloes, the Beatles being on there. I didn't know who they were, but uh, certainly was a lot of excitement, a lot of screaming. But what I do remember is that every show this is how Ed Sullivan began. He'd say, tonight we have a really big shoe. Tonight we have a really big shoe for you. Every week there was a really big shoe. And so when I thought about what do you want from Jesus, I thought, you know, part of the challenge for us as Christians is that we just want a really big show. We want to be entertained. We don't want to have to do anything. We want to see all the hoopla, and enjoy it all. But that's not the same as abundant life. Abundant life looks differently than a big show. Tonight, we have a really big show. But as Jesus gathered his crowds together, Crowds of people came because of his teaching and his healing, his preaching. There were no neon lights when he performed. There were no celebrities. There were no VIP seating. There was no door prizes. There were no costumes. It was just Jesus and the twelve. And when they fed 5,000, they did it with just five loaves and two fish. And when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, they listened to him all day long and into the night. And when he turned water into wine, he took water and some ritual cleansing vessels. And that's where the wine turned to. Nothing spectacular. All Jesus did was take ordinary things, ordinary teachings, but from that he brings abundant life. Think about the Last Supper. What we will remember today is that he took some bread and he took some wine and he transformed that gift through faith into his true body. 
What would it look like if Christians began to choose abundant life instead of entertainment? What, if, what would it look like if our works were in harmony with Christ's teaching? What is Christ's teaching for us today? What is, what is that? How do we discern that? That may become the biggest challenge for us as Christians. How do we know what Christ is calling us to do? How do we know what Christ has called us to be? I remember years ago now, um, I used to have lunches periodically with our leadership. And uh, there were two board members that uh, met me for this particular lunch. And it must have been this time of year right before an election because we got talking about the election. And what they, they didn't get into the politics, but what they both agreed on was that Christians should vote the values that the political party reflects seem kind of sad today, I would still laugh. You see, when we disagree about so much, how do we have any sense of unity when our worldviews are so far apart? Jesus calls us to a life of humility and service, and that is the key. If there is any hope for us as a Christian body, it is going to be found in our humility and our service. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus concludes our reading for today with, The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. Now I want to address the upcoming election for a moment. First of all, Everyone should vote. You should vote. No matter who you vote for, it is a civic responsibility and a civic act to vote. So if you have not yet voted, make sure that you go and vote on Tuesday. What if your candidate loses the election? Or I could also ask, what if your candidate wins the election? Please remember this that our primary allegiance is not to a political party. We can't even agree on the value system. Our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And let's not forget that on Tuesday. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to God that which belongs to God. Let's not get the two And if you are fearful about this Tuesday or Wednesday, the days after, because of the threats that you've been hearing, perhaps in the news, let me just remind you that this is not the first time that we have encountered threats as a nation or as Christians. And if you remember this summer, we did a, a long look at the, first, the book of 1 Peter. This is the first book that Peter wrote to a Christian community in Asia Minor up in uh, today's uh, part of Turkey and part of Greece. And this is what, what he would have wanted us to remember, that the early church described all kinds of threats and all kinds of fear. And in First Peter, he responds to the church about how we can live, survive, even thrive in the midst of 
for the press. The early church describes daily doses of the problems and how the apostles dealt with them. So we go back to Scripture for our foundation. But mostly I want you to remember this, that Jesus Christ died for all of you. For each one of you, he died for Republicans, and he died for Democrats, and he died for Independents, and he died for Green Party, and he died for Libertarians. He died for everyone. His death was not for one particular group. It is for all. And even if we fail in our attempts to do what is right, I want you to remember that. Even if you have failed, Jesus died for you. Even if you don't vote your conscience, Jesus died for you. Thankfully, Jesus Christ has done what we cannot do. He has demonstrated his love for all people, for every single person, no matter what color, no matter what race. God has died for all of you. Mostly I want to remind you that he went to the cross for you and for your neighbor. And because of that, we can serve one another. We can love one another. And that begins with humility. The first recognition Christians behaving badly is our loss of humility. The first step in Christians behaving wisely is to regain a sense of humility. I'm going to invite you to pray with me now as I offer a prayer uh, for our upcoming week here. O oh God of refuge and strength in all of our conflicts, help us to confront one another without hatred. Help us confront one another without bitterness, without violence. Help us to listen for your voice amid competing claims and to work together with mutual respect for one another. Lead us from death to life, from falsehood to truth, from fear to trust. Lead us from hate to love, from war to peace, and fill all of our hearts, our world, and our universe with your peace. Amid all the turmoil and to all the changes of our nation, your love remains steadfast and your strength never fails. In this time of danger and trouble, be to us a sure guardian and a rock of defense. Guide the leaders of our nation with your wisdom and grant us courage and hope to face the future through Jesus Christ, our Savior and 